Welcome to the Digital Horizons Leaders Podcast. My name is Michal Katz, and I head the Investment and Corporate Banking Division at Mizuho Americas. We welcome my friend Linda Mantia to Mizuho's Digital Horizons Leader Series, where we examine the impact and influence of technology across industry. Linda is a business leader and thought leader with extensive operating background at industry bellwethers. She currently serves as a board member of Ceridian, a human capital management software company with 17 billion market cap, McKesson Corporation, a leading healthcare company of 32 billion market cap, and is also a director of Mind Beacon Holdings, granular insurance company, and an advisor to Verily Life Sciences, an alphabet company. She's also the former senior EVP and chief operating officer at Manulife Financial, which is a multinational insurance company, and previously was EVP of digital payments and cards at Royal Bank of Canada and chair of Monera Solutions, where we had the pleasure of working closely together to launch the firm's innovation labs. Earlier in her career, Linda worked as a management consultant at McKinsey and as a corporate securities attorney. Linda has been celebrated as one of Canada's top 100 most powerful women by the Women's Executive Network and also recognized as a trendsetter and a trailblazer. Linda, it is a pleasure to have you join us today. Thank you, Mikhail, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Your experience place you at the epicenter of technological trends that are changing industries across our economy, particularly in financial services sector, where you run the payments and cards business at one of Canada's largest banks. And you also have great insights into the healthcare industry. Can you talk a little bit about some of the technology trends uh, and the impact you have seen in these two sectors, perhaps even common themes or threads that you're seeing? Yeah, I would definitely say, you know, if I think back into financial services, and it's, you know, the time you and I worked together when fintech was really breaking through, the first place we saw a big transformation on the retail side related to payments. And I always said that a lot of these innovations really had nothing to do with banking. Commerce is where so much of the innovation was occurring. And when you look at it, the players like Amazon that emerged from dot-com, they broke through and won because they addressed a consumer experience, which wasn't just buying books, but buying books easily, securely, safely with their cart, their shopping cart, it really broke them away from others. And that was the innovation in dot-com. And then what we saw is that payments needed to innovate with mobile. And there was a real race on who could deliver secure payments using the mobile device the fastest. And I think that's where we've seen a ton of transformation in payments, started with commerce and online shopping. And then in the US, peer-to-peer payments were extremely complex. So there was some innovation there. And that's where we saw, I would say, where mass adoption occurred, you know, a real problem statement with a solution that a lot of people had access to. And in financial services, There is a lot of what I'll call technology that is transforming things, be it blockchain, big data, artificial intelligence, et cetera. But we're not yet on the retail side pointed at a problem that will be extraordinarily transformed with that technology. 
we're seeing a lot of experiments and we still see a lot of fintech players trying to drive better outcomes for consumers. And we're seeing more and more activity and wealth. You know, healthcare is really fun for me where I look at the size of the problem, which is very significant and how little, if I could call it that innovation that has taken place. But this is where you have some of the biggest thought leaders and really influential people in healthcare who are beginning to see that the technology can be used to drive them faster to personalized and precise medicine. And then, you know, the other side of it is a system, and we'll talk more about this, I'm sure, that's quite broken, that needs to move from a fee-for-service model to some sort of value model or pay for performance, given the astronomical growth in costs in healthcare. So lots of innovation there to improve the consumer experience and the cost of care. And maybe we can just double click on that just a tad. How can technology help in evolving that broken system? One of the areas, and you you mentioned it in the introduction, I'm working with an alphabet company, Verily. And the woman who runs the health platforms part, Dr. Vivian Lee, she is unbelievably qualified, having run health systems, been a researcher, run medical schools, etc. And she joined because of the ability now to leverage the technology to transform healthcare. So as part of the Google families, there's a big belief in sensors, as an example, to begin to drive to more personalized medicine. There's a big belief that better understanding data will also improve personalized medicine. All of the sensor technology that you're seeing that can help people on preventative type of medicine and the Internet of Things, you know, where you can wear devices that will be able to tell people before they have serious issues or help manage chronic disease like diabetes is the, is the one they've focused a lot on. There's really an unlimited number of technologies. And a lot of what I described are tech advancements. And in parallel, there are very significant medical advancements in technology, like in the genomics area, that are driving transformative change. That's fantastic. So big data is obviously one of the key macro trends of our era, and data has been coined uh, to be the new currency. And you just gave us great examples in the healthcare uh, sector. Can you share some examples of the transformative power of data in financial services and maybe how it's being used to provide better solutions or services and opportunities, both for the providers as well as those who are uh, the potential beneficiaries? Yeah. In Canada, we have a single provider. And in health care, there was a belief that this is a gold mine of data, to use your words, you know, the oil of, uh, <laughs> of the future with all of the data that we have. And in the province of Ontario, we have a very diverse population, so it would be rich with data. The challenge, and I think this is just, you know, to show that there's a lot of potential that will take a while to get to, is this mass amount of data is not really collected in a consumable form. So what we're seeing a lot more with data is the ability to follow a lot more people with a lot more data points on clinical trials and collecting current data to be able to better understand across people what is happening as opposed to mining historical data. 
And I think that's what we're going to see a lot more of in the healthcare space. And that's going to take some time. I would have thought we'd be using the data more for obvious things. And this is probably my banking background, like fraud management. Because when I think back to what allowed data and innovation and digital to take off in financial services, it was giving consumers confidence that they wouldn't bear the risk of the loss of their data. As you know, in my career, I benefited from that data and we used it in a huge way in the beginning to manage payments fraud. And it was massive amounts of data where you had to look at behavior and overlay new data points. Is that the same device that Mikhail always uses? Is Mikhail in the same geography as we'd expect her to be making that payment because it looks out of ordinary? And we were able to tune our tools so that it wouldn't disrupt your shopping very often, but we'd also be able to protect you from that payment. And in the end, if someone, we gained so much confidence in the use of our data that if someone did use your card, the bank would take the risk if it couldn't recover from the merchant. And I do believe that that's an area that healthcare is very cautious about going into. In Canada, the data is collected solely for the purpose of being able to charge the government. So we are not using that data. But I do think if we think of that data this way and use it to improve consumers' confidence around how safe their very private, very personal data is, we will get more approvals and more comfort from regulators around using that data. I think that um, would be a great, great use case because clearly data, particularly data collected by financial services institution, give the financial institution visibility into the consumer purchasing preferences, the credit card statements and your bank statements tell us where you're traveling, when are you traveling, what are you eating, what are your brand preferences and how much you're spending. And it clearly raises some ethical concerns, not just security concerns with respect to the information that's being aggregated and utilized. So perhaps, and again, this is a much broader conversation, but thoughts around balancing that and drawing the line that balances optimization and greater services, but at the same time, providing protection, security, privacy for the end user. Yeah, and you can really see how privacy and security are so tightly wound. And I think the key is that partner with the consumer who has their data really needs to think about that as a true fiduciary responsibility. You know, my background is as a lawyer and I always think, hey, would this meet the fiduciary requirement in how I'm using the data? And we're moving to a very transparent era. So if the consumer knew how I was using their data, would they feel comfortable or uncomfortable? And of course, I'm assuming this is an upstanding citizen as opposed to people who do it for nefarious reasons or are worried for other reasons. So the way we thought about it was we used people's data to protect them from the third parties that I described. We didn't sell their data. We used their data to try and find other financial products that would be useful to them. And we were very careful with A-B testing to see, do people appreciate this and is it seen as helpful? Or do people see it as a push? You may remember one of our early trials on mobile banking was to kind of pre-approve people right in mobile banking, that they could draw down credit lines, et cetera. 
And feedback came back right away. Don't use my data for that till I apply. It sounds easy, but I feel like you're pushing credit on me. So we were glad we did that in a small trial and we stopped that based on the feedback. But I think if you keep thinking of yourself as the custodian and is the way you're using the data being used in a win-win situation, you can stand in front of that, in front of anyone and explain how you're using it. We used a lot of that to build a rewards program, which was built off of customer data to help them earn more for what they're spending. I loved the moniker of true fiduciary or custodian. I think maybe relatedly to big data, artificial intelligence has enabled greater ability to leverage data. How do you see AI deployed in the financial industry today and, or the healthcare sector today and in the coming decades? I think it's like all you know, continuously evolving technologies. You, you've had people pouring over analytics, then you have predictive analytics, you begin to move into algorithms so that you can more quickly make decisions. We use them in retail and offers with people. Google used them in real time to price our ads, et cetera. So I do think it will continue to evolve. When you look back at why is it taking so long, I think if organizations haven't been data intensive and uh, very structured about their data, it's hard to use. You know, One of my early examples, it was the best learning I ever had, we were thinking of launching a new product. And the data would suggest that our target audience was a 40, you know, I'm getting the age wrong, but let's just say it's a 42-year-old male and the person shops in these shops, et cetera, et cetera. And everything was directed to that persona in terms of how we were going to market it. And when the folks who ran data in the organization found out, you know, how we were using it and where we were going, they began to fight back around not letting us access, not letting the business units access the data because we didn't know how to use it. And I'm telling this story because in a lot of legacy organizations, it's very hard for business units to get access to organizational data. And the reason in my story they found it difficult is we didn't understand which fields of data are good fields and which ones you can't 100% rely on. So the default, and you might recall this when you apply for banking products or insurance products, they don't really ask you, are you male or female? You may choose to put Mr. or Mrs. or Ms., or you may put doctor, or you may leave it blank. And when someone used doctor or left it blank, the default was male. So that field was about 65% reliable, and we used it as one of the first filters in our algorithm which therefore meant the algorithm was fundamentally flawed. So just going back to, you know, AI and how it's going to be used, it'll again need to be used when we have confidence that the way the data is set up is correct. Because we're hearing all the criticisms of AI and, you know, some of it's obvious and good, like getting rid of human error and being available 24-7 and getting rid of mundane jobs where you can't hire. But it also can have biases. Like in my example, there was a, I wouldn't say it was a bias to being a male product. Someone just made a decision to default. But you can imagine how cautious organizations are going to be in relying in a replicable, auditable algorithm to do some of the work without the confidence of the data that underpins it. That's a great example. 
Maybe to switch gears just a tad, incredible amount of innovation has come out of the private sector, and you are a founding member of, of a bank's innovation lab. Today, you chair the Minister's Task Force on Digital and Data Strategy for the Ontario government. Maybe you could share with us some of the issues that you're tackling today. So the public sector is like running a really massive organization that was organized a long, long time ago and hasn't been able to morph very much. And most of these amazing technologies that the government would like to use are very horizontal. You know, the technologies that sit behind, let's say, digital identity, it cuts across so many different sectors of the government. Where do you want to use digital identity? You're going to want to use it in education and in healthcare and immigration, in travel, etc. And nothing is set up to be leveraged that way horizontally. So part of the innovation, and again, we've seen this in big companies, is how to change legislation or find ways to work within the legislation for folks to work together on some of these technology solutions that sound relatively, I won't say easy, but obvious. I don't think the government is confused that they have a massive responsibility in building out the digital infrastructure of the future. They know they have to get internet to everyone and have that be a mass adopted technology in a very equitable way for all large and small communities. They know we have a security issue because we've relied on paper objects. Photographs are being taken of them and being used as digital identity in a very non-secure way. So they are looking for innovation and working with the private sector. But overcoming some of these challenges are very difficult. We had a wonderful discussion with some of the leaders from Estonia. And for anyone who's followed Estonia, they've, you know, they really have digitized government there starting with digital ID and then moving through all life events, showing how low cost and helpful government can be. But when they really understand, you know, the legislative backdrop for how we're currently organized, it is a very complicated place to be. And I would say the governments are pushing hard in innovating within their silos, and it won't drive the kind of transformation we need. But I'd say it's an appropriate realization. And then what I think happened in the U.S., um, and we'll see how that continues to evolve, is um, when President Biden in May really came out hard on cybersecurity with his recognition that it is the biggest threat the government has, that they need to accelerate actions to address cyber threats and adjust laws to pursue cyber threats and cyber actors, etc., I think things like that will help cut through the challenge in moving horizontally across government. But it, again, is a long path. We've seen other countries, uh, I know you visit the innovation teams in Israel quite a bit, that through defense, they've been able to be incredibly innovative. And I think things like, you know, we're starting to see in North America should help. So what are some of the next trends in technology that you believe are perhaps underappreciated? You know, I would have thought by now augmented reality, virtual reality would be more meaningful. And it's been very, very slow. I think there's some great use cases in certain industries and sectors in the business world, but it hasn't become consumer friendly. And that's despite a lot of investments, et cetera. 
you know, blockchain is the same where I think you and I both would have thought that the use cases would be further advanced by now. And those are taking longer. And I do think that they will become very meaningful. They'll become meaningful in healthcare, virtual reality will. I think they'll become relevant in commerce and some other consumer applications. But I think we're going to see some of those stay in the B2B space. Digital identity remains one that will be a big deal if we can get it right. But it is another one that's taking a lot longer than people would have thought. And I think, you know, digital moves at the speed of security. And that is something that we still need to address to be able to accelerate some of these other technologies. You know, thinking about our conversation today and the landscape broadly, it seemed to me that David has been shaping kind of the path for Goliath. I mean, I was looking at PayPal's market cap sitting at over 300 billion and it's on par with some of the biggest U.S. banks. And when we worked together, we talked about the importance of scale and resources, particularly in financial services, and I would argue in healthcare as well. But it does feel at times that David is outdrawing Goliath yet again with the innovation. Do you agree with that statement? Yeah, yeah, yes and no. I mean, I think time will tell which which are the Davids that aren't within the hype cycle versus ones that, you know, will grow into the future Goliaths to transform the two industries you just talked about, healthcare and financial services. You have to own the guarantee. Are you going to be the health insurer behind that or the life insurer? Are you going to be the credit provider? And I think it's interesting because we are seeing some of the, I'll call them the new generation Goliaths move into providing the industry backstops through these, you know, through insurance or taking the credit risk. And they're gobbling up some of the Davids. I guess we need a third generation. I don't know if David are the newest of the guys and the Goliaths might be the last dot com generation. Where did the legacy insurance companies and banks and healthcare institutions fit in? Because I do think it's that third one that is having the biggest problem you know, to go back to what you were saying before, and it kind of fits in the David and Goliath issue, is the the legacy companies that have the scale and resources, a little like the way we describe the government, will struggle to organize to use these new technologies. I remember it was Rupert Murdoch who said, we may never become true digital natives, but we can and must begin to assimilate to their culture and way of thinking. And I think that the Goliaths, the big new companies, can do that because they are formed by these digital natives. But in these largest of companies, and I'm generalizing, there are many people, a huge percentage of their employee base, who are digital immigrants. And within that, I mean, all these words can be taken the wrong way. But within that, there are many who are very reluctant to change or are you know really reluctant to reimagine their fiduciary responsibility if you want to say it in the most positive of light they're not blocking for the sake of blocking but if they don't understand how these technologies work the human instinct is to try and slow these things down so i do worry that these new attackers the attackers from the dot com will gobble up last generation's goliaths because they just cannot move fast enough the cultural divide in trying to acquire some of these younger companies are, you know, in many cases too big. There's always exceptions, 
but um, you know, those are exceptions. So maybe we change gears to talk a little bit about advice on leadership. I mean, your resume is incredibly unique in that you've had experience across a number of sectors. And I am interested in hearing your views on what skills have enabled you to transition across different fields, talking about legal, consultancy, operator, advisor, across both commercial as well as public sector. It's a just incredible span. Yeah, it's funny. We, we got a puppy a little while ago and um, the breeder was like, you know, it's so important how you imprint on them. And I hadn't really used that word when I think about myself and what early skills I have. But I think as time has gone on, I've really realized some of your best skills are the things that were imprinted on you early on in your career. So, you know, for me, what was imprinted when I started is I left law school in 92. It was the end of the real estate depression. And our whole years were, we were filled with fear that no one would get jobs. The years before us, if they got articling jobs, they weren't hired back. So we came out with a real feistiness to want to work hard and get any job we could. And I joined a law firm that focused on corporate securities and really did, it was one of the first firms to do the bot deal. And its motto was sleep when you're dead. And when you come out of school and you're hungry to learn, and it was a true meritocracy, you know, partly based on how long you could stay awake, I really learned that, you know, the harder I worked, the luckier I could get. And the interesting thing for me, and this was before computers, is I'd go into meetings where I was being asked to do things and I didn't even understand the words that I was being told, like work on this poison pill or whatever. But I quickly learned that if I took really good notes and really built up my relationships with my colleagues and the younger partners, I could figure anything out and not to be intimidated by the words. And I think that has really stuck with me. And it's something that I'm fortunate enough to get positive feedback on early in my career. And it became really reinforcing that they can throw me at anything and I'll learn. And I have a real natural curiosity to learn and to listen to others around it. And I've also learned that I get really bored if something isn't interesting and I'm not at my best. So I think one of, you know, one of the things that has worked well for me is that curiosity and hard work. Obviously, as I've moved to join some boards, I got to rein that in a bit. No one, no one really enjoys too much curiosity around the boardroom table. But I would say that that was one of the things. And then second, which kind of ties to, you know, a question I often get as to, you know, I'm not a technologist. Why am I so deep in technology? Is it's timing. I, I see myself more as a problem solver. When I moved from the law firm I was at to McKinsey, one of the early projects I was put on was a, an M&A between two banks. And as I talked to people around the world who had been involved in other projects, they said, look, the world is changing. It's no longer the better bank that takes over the other one. It has 100% to do with which of the two banks has better technology. And fight the leaders every time they try and cherry pick, you know, let's keep this trading system and we'll cherry pick this other system, et cetera and go whole hog one or the other. And it was interesting because I read this and, you know, the whole team learned that as well. But there was a huge cultural divide. It's same as the one I was talking about before between, I would say, the C-suite of the two banks and 
their ability to communicate with the technology teams. And it was really interesting to me. Uh, you know, there was definitely some hierarchy in their minds as to technology. You know, back then it was infrastructure, the mainframe, the data center, the networks, et cetera. But I, of course, dove into it because it was a problem that needed to be solved. And I didn't understand technology. So I had to get to know the CIOs and get their input and talk to other CIOs that were helping us around the world, et cetera. But again, that I guess I would say my second skill that's been helpful to move around is problem solving. I'm not curious for the sake of being curious around technology. And I think what we're seeing in the sectors, you know, it's what grabbed me with healthcare is there is a real problem to be solved. And if folks don't know about what's possible with um, artificial intelligence, blockchain, digital, consumer apps, gamification, like pick whichever you want in healthcare, if they're not aware of it, they won't be using those tools to solve the problems. And people like Dr. Vivian Lee, who I'm working with at Verily, she's not tech enamored, but you can explain a technology to her and have her be around people who will say, oh, I understand that problem. Here are some new capabilities that you can use. And that's what really excites me is, is being able to solve problems and being curious enough about all these new technologies so that it's not, you know, a hammer looking for a nail. It's a tool set that you can bring to any problem. That's uh, really great advice. Work hard, be curious, which puts you in the path of opportunities. Look to be a go-to to solve problems and I would say all of these are applicable at any stage of one's career. Linda, I thank you for uh, participating with us. Thanks very much, Mikkel. It's been great spending time together again. Thank you for those listening to the Digital Horizons Leaders Podcast. Visit our website, www.mizuhodigitalhorizons.com for more episodes in this series and read more on the trends and technologies emerging from Digital Transformation 3.0. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or recommendation from any Mizuho entity to the listener. Neither Mizuho nor any of its affiliates make any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or the completeness of the statements or any of the information contained in this podcast and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct or indirect or consequential losses or damage is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Mizuho, and Mizuho is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of the podcast by any listener is not to be taken as the giving of investment advice by Mizuho, nor to constitute that person a client of any Mizuho entity. For additional disclaimers and regulatory disclosures, please visit mizuhogroup.com forward slash Americas.